Hi everyone, it's Miss Felicia J here and welcome to Love Life in a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine. This is the chapter by chapter episode. I started this podcast because of my sons and the questions that they asked me and the profound conversations that ensued as a result. <coughs> Excuse me. I wanted to add to broadening their minds, so I suggested that they read some of the books that I love to read and that interest me. Well, that didn't quite work out as well as I planned, so I came up with the idea of a podcast. Reading the books that I love, heard about, wanted to read, etc., etc. So, here I am reading the books that I feel will inspire my sons, the rest of my children, you, and of course myself. If you have a suggestion, email me at chapterbychapter at gmail.com or visit me at chapterbychapter256 or at Miss Felicia J and put it in the comment section and I will... Put it on the reading list. This episode, we are reading the five people you meet in heaven, and we are on page 120. And so, I'd like to get to that, but before we start, I would just like to pour my favorite drink. And even though we talk about a beautiful glass of red wine, all kinds of drinks can happen. So, this week, lemon water. And if you want to know why and get all the details, check out Love Life in a Beautiful Glass of Red Wine and find out. All right, everyone, let's get started. I'm excited about this week because I want to find out about Ruby and more about Ruby and about Ruby's connection to Eddie's father and therefore um, Ruby's connection to Eddie. So here we go. Let's find out. I am Ruby. It suddenly made sense to Eddie why the woman looked familiar. He had seen her photograph somewhere in the back of the repair shop among the old manuals and paperwork from the park's initial ownership. <clears throat> the old entrance, Eddie said. She nodded in satisfaction. The original Ruby Pier entrance had <clears throat> excuse me, been something of a landmark, a giant arching structure based on, the, his, on a historic French temple with fluted columns and a, cove, a cove dome at the top. Just beneath that <clears throat> dome, under which all patrons would pass, was the painted face of a beautiful woman. This woman... Ruby. But that thing was destroyed a long time ago, Eddie said. There was a big... He paused. Fire, the old woman said. Yes, a very big fire. She dropped her chin, and her eyes looked down through her spectacles, as if she were reading from her lap. <clears throat> it was Independence Day, the 4th of July, a holiday. Emil loved holidays, good for business, he'd say. If Independence Day went well, the entire summer might go well. <clears throat> so Emil arranged for fireworks. He brought in a marching band, even hired extra workers, rustabouts mostly, just for that weekend. Sorry, but something happened the night before the celebration. It was hot even after the sun went down and a few of the rustabouts chose to sleep outside, behind the worksheds. They lit a fire in a metal barrel to roast their food. <clears throat> As the night went on, there was drinking and carousing. The workers got hold of some of the smaller fireworks. They set them off. The wind blew. The sparks flew. Everything in those days was made of lath and tar. She shook her head. The rest happened quickly. The fire spread to the midway and the food stalls and onto the animal cages. The rustabouts ran off. By the time someone came to our home to wake us, Ruby Pier was in flames. 
From our window we saw the horrible orange blaze. We heard the horses' hooves and the steamer engines of the fire companies. People were in the street. I begged Emil not to go, but that was fruitless. Of course he would go. He would go to the raging fire, and he would try to salvage his years of work, and he would lose himself in anger and fear. And when the entrance caught fire, the entrance with my name and my picture, he lost all sense of where he was, too. He was trying to throw buckets of water when a column collapsed upon him. She put her fingers together and raised them to her lips. <clears throat> In the course of one night, our lives were changed forever. Risk-taker that he was, Emil had acquired only minimal insurance on the pier. He lost his fortune. His splendid gift to me was gone. In desperation, he sold the charred grounds to a businessman from Pennsylvania for far less than it was worth. That man kept the name Ruby Pier, and in time he reopened the park. But it was not ours anymore. Emil's spirit was as broken as his body. It took three years before he could walk on his own. We moved away to a place outside the city, a small plot, where our lives were spent modestly, me tending to my wounded husband and silently nurturing a single wish. She stopped. What wish, Eddie said, that he had never built that place. The old woman sat in silence, studied the vast jade sky. He thought about how many times he had wished this same thing, that whoever had built Ruby Pier had done something else with his money. I'm sorry about your husband, Eddie said, mostly because he didn't know what else to say. The old woman smiled. Thank you, dear. But we lived many years beyond those flames. We raised three children. Emil was sickly in and out of the hospital. He left me a widow in my fifties. See this face, these wrinkles? She turned her cheeks upward. I earned every one of them. Eddie frowned. I don't understand. Did we ever meet? Did you ever come to the pier? No, she said. I never wanted to see the pier again. My children went there, and their children and theirs, but not me. My idea of heaven was as far from the ocean as possible, back in that busy diner, when my days were simple, when Emil was courting me. Eddie rubbed his temples. When he breathed, mist emerged. So why am I here, he said. I mean your story, the fire. It all happened before I was born. Things that happened before you were born still affect you, she said, and people who come before your time affect you as well. We move through places every day that would never have been if not for those who came before us. Our workplaces where we spend so much time, we often think they begin with our, began with our arrival. That's not true. She tapped her fingers together. If not for a meal, I would have no husband. If not for our marriage, there would be no peer. For there be no pe if there would be no peer, you have not ended up working there. Eddie scratched his head. So you're here to tell me about work? No, dear, Ruby answered, her voice softening. I'm here to, t here to tell you why your father died. The phone call from Eddie's mother, his father had collapsed that afternoon, on the east end of the boardwalk near the junior rock ride, rocket ride. He had a raging fever. Eddie, I'm afraid, his mother said, her voice shaking. She told him of a night earlier in the week when his father had come home at dawn soaking wet. His clothes were full of sand. He was missing his shoe. She said he smelled like the ocean. Eddie bet he smelled like liquor, too. He was coughing, his mother explained. It just got worse. We should have called the doctor right away. She drifted in her words. She had gone to work that day, she said. Sorry, he'd gone to work that day, she'd said, sick as he was. 
with his tool belt and his ball-peen hammer, same as always. But that night, he'd refused to eat, and in bed he'd hacked and wheezed and sweated through his undershirt. The next day was worse, and now this afternoon, he'd collapsed. The doctor said it's pneumonia. Oh, I should have done something. I should have done something. What were you supposed to do, Eddie asked. He was mad that she took this on herself. It was his father's drunken fault. Through the phone, he heard her crying. Eddie's father used to say he'd spent so many years by the ocean, he breathed breathed salt seawater. Now away from that ocean in the confines of a hospital bed, his body began to weather, wither like a beached fish. Complications developed, congestion built in his chest. His condition went from fair to stable and from stable to serious. Friends went from saying he'll be home in a day to to he'll be home in a week. In his father's absence, Eddie helped out at the pier, working evenings after his taxi job, greasing the tracks, checking the brake pads, testing the levers, even repairing broken ride parts in the shop. What he really was doing was protecting his father's job. The owners acknowledged his efforts, then paid him half of what his father earned. He gave the money to his mother, who went to the hospital every day and slept there most nights. Eddie and Marguerite cleaned her apartment and shopped for her food. When Eddie was a teenager, if he ever complained or seemed bored with the pier, his father would snap, What? This ain't good enough for you? And later, when he suggested Eddie take a job there after high school, Eddie almost laughed, and his father said, What? This ain't good enough for you? And before Eddie went to war, when he talked of marrying Marguerite and becoming an engineer, his father said, What? This ain't good for you? And now, despite all that, here he was, at the pier, doing his father's labor. Finally, one night at his mother's urging, Eddie visited the hospital. He entered the room slowly. His father, who for years had refused to speak to Eddie, now lacked the strength to even try. He watched his son with heavy-lidded eyes. Eddie, after struggling to find even one sentence to say, did the only thing he could think of doing. He held up his hands and showed his father his grease-stained fingertips. Don't sweat it, kid, the other maintenance workers told him. Your old man will pull through. He's the toughest son of a gun we've ever seen. Parents rarely let go of their children, so children let go of them. They move on, they move away. The moments that used to define them, a mother's approval, a father's nod, are covered by moments of their own accomplishments. It is not until much later, as the skin sags and the heart weakens, that children understand their stories and all their accomplishments, sit atop the stories of their mothers and fathers, stones upon stones, beneath the waters of their lives. When the news came that his father had died, slipped away, a nurse told him, as if he had gone out for milk, Eddie felt the emptiest kind of anger, the kind that circles in its cage. Like most working men's sons, Eddie had envisioned for his father a heroic death to counter the commonness of his life. There was nothing heroic about a drunken stupor by the beach. The next day he went to his parents' apartment, entered their bedroom, and opened all the drawers, as if he might find a piece of his father inside. He rifled through the coins, a tie pin, a small bottle of apple brandy, rubber bands, electric bills, pens, and a cigarette lighter with a mermaid on the side. Finally, he found a pair, a deck of playing cards. He put it in his pocket. The funeral was small and brief. In the weeks that followed, Eddie's mother lived in a daze. She spoke to her husband as if he was still there. She yelled at him to turn down the radio. She cooked enough food for two. She fluffed pillows on both sides of the bed, even though only one side had been slept in. 
One night, Eddie saw her stacking dishes on the countertop. Let me help you, he said. No, no, his mother said, answered. Your father will put them away. Eddie put a hand on her shoulder. Ma, he said softly. Dad's gone. Gone where? The next day, Eddie went to the dispatcher and told him he was quitting. Two weeks later, he and Marguerite moved back into the building where Eddie had grown up. Beechwood Avenue, apartment 6B. Where the hallways were narrow and the kitchen window viewed the carousel. And where Eddie had accepted a job that would let him keep an eye on his mother. A position he had been groomed for summer after summer. A maintenance man at Ruby Pier. Eddie never said this, not to his wife, not to his mother, not to anyone. But he cursed his father for dying and for trapping him in the very life he'd been trying so he'd been trying to escape. A life that, as he heard the old man laughing from the grave, apparently now was good enough for him. Today is Eddie's birthday. He is 37. His breakfast is getting cold. You see any salt, Eddie asks Noel. Noel is chewing a mouthful of sausage. Sorry, Noel chewing a mouthful of sausage slides out from the booth leans across another table and grabs a salt shaker. Here, he mumbles, happy birthday. Eddie shakes it hard. How tough is it to keep salt on the table? Where are you? What are you, the manager, Noel says. Eddie shrugs. The morning is already hot and thick with humidity. This is their routine. Breakfast once a week, Saturday mornings, before the park gets crazy. Noel works in the dry cleaning business. Eddie helped him get the contract for Ruby Pier's maintenance uniforms. What do you think of this... Good-looking guy, Noel says. He has a copy of Life magazine open to a photo of a young politician, political candidate, rather. How can this guy run for president? He's a kid. Eddie shrugs. He's about our age. No fooling, Eddie says. He lifts an eyebrow. I thought you had to be older to be president. We are older, Eddie mumbles. Noel closes the magazine. His voice drops. You hear what happened at Brighton? Eddie nods. He sips his coffee. He'd heard. An amusement park, a gondola ride. Something snapped. A mother and her son fell, 60 feet to their death. You know anybody up there? Noel asks. Eddie puts his tongue between his teeth. Every now and then he hears these stories. An accident at a park somewhere, and he shudders as if a wasp just flew by his car. Now today passes that he doesn't worry about it happening here, at Ruby Pier, under his watch. Nuh-uh, he says. I don't know no one in Brighton. He fixes his eyes out the window as a crowd of beachgoers emerge from the train station. They carry towels, umbrellas, and wicker baskets with sandwiches wrapped in paper. Some even have the newest thing, foldable chairs made from lightweight aluminum. An old man walks past in a Panama hat, smoking a cigar. Look at that guy, Eddie says. I promise you he'll drop that cigar on the boardwalk. Yeah, Noel says. So? It falls in the cracks and it starts to burn. You can smell it. The chemical they put on the wood. It starts smoking right away. Yesterday I grabbed a kid. Couldn't have been more than four years old. About to put a cigar butt in his mouth. Noel made a face. And? Eddie turns aside. And nothing. People should be more careful, that's all. Noel shovels a fork full of sausage into his mouth. You're a barrel, barrel of laughs. You're always this much fun on your birthday? Eddie doesn't answer. The old darkness has taken a seat alongside him. He's used to it by now making room for it the way you make room for a commuter on a crowded bus. He thinks about the maintenance load laundry, load today. Broken mirror in the front house. New fenders for the bumper cars. Glue, he reminds himself. Gotta order more glue. He thinks about those poor people in Brighton. He wonders who's in charge up there. 
What time you finish today, Noel asks. Eddie exhales. It's going to be a busy summer Saturday, you know? Noel lifts an eyebrow. We can make the track by six. Eddie thinks about Marguerite. He always thinks about Marguerite when Noel mentions the horse track. Come on, it's your birthday, Noel says. Eddie pokes a fork at his eggs, now too cold to bother with. All right, he says. The third lesson. Was the pier so bad, the old woman asked. It wasn't my choice, Eddie said, sighing. My mother passed. My mother needed help. One thing led to another. Years passed. I never left. I never lived nowhere else. Never made any real money. You know how it is. You get used to something. People rely on you. One day you wake up and you can't tell Tuesday from Thursday. You're doing the same boring stuff. You're a ride, man, just like your father. Eddie said nothing. He was hard on you, the woman said. Eddie lowered his eyes. Yeah, so? Perhaps you were hard on him, too. I doubt it. You know the last time he talked to me? The last time he tried to strike you? Eddie shot her a look. And you know the last thing he said to me? Get a job. Some father, huh? The old woman pursed her lips. You began to work after that. You picked yourself up. Eddie felt a rumbling of anger. Look, he snapped. You didn't know the guy. That's true, she, she, that's true, she rose. But I know something you don't, and it's time to show you. Ruby pointed with the tip of her parasol and drew a circle in the snow. When Eddie looked into the snow, sir, rather circle, he felt as if his eyes were falling from their sockets and traveling on their own, down a hole and into another moment. The images sharpened. It was years ago in the old apartment. He could see front and back, above and below. This is what he saw. He saw his mother looking concerned, sitting at the kitchen table. He saw Mickey Shea sitting across from her. Mickey looked awful. He was soaking wet, and he kept rubbing his hands over his forehead and down his nose. He began to sob. Eddie's mother brought him a glass of water. She motioned for him to wait, and walked to the bedroom and shut the door. She took off her shoes and her house dress. She reached for a blouse and a skirt. Eddie could see all the rooms, but he could not hear what the two of them were saying. It was just blurred noise. He saw Mickey in the kitchen, ignoring the glass of water, pulling a flask from his jacket and swigging from it. Then slowly he got up and staggered to the bedroom. He opened the door. Eddie saw his mother half-dressed turn in surprise. Mickey was wobbling. She pulled her robe around her. Mickey came closer. Her hand went out instinctively to block him. Mickey froze. Just for an instant, then grabbed that hand and grabbed Eddie's mother and backed her into the wall, leaning against her, grabbing her waist. She squirmed and yelled and pushed on Mickey's chest while still gripping her robe. He was bigger and stronger, and he buried his unshaven face below her cheek, smearing tears on her neck. Then the front door opened and Eddie's father stood there, wet from rain, a ball-peen hammer hanging from his belt. He ran into the bedroom and saw Mickey grabbing his wife. Eddie's father hollered. He raised the hammer. Mickey put his hand over his head, charged to the door, knocking Eddie's father sideways. Eddie's mother was crying, her chest heaving, her face streamed with tears. Her husband grabbed her by the shoulders. He shook her violently. Her robe fell. They were both screaming. Then Eddie's father left the apartment, smashing a lamp with a hammer on his way out. He thumped down the steps and ran off into the rainy night. What was that? Eddie yelled in, the belie yelled in disbelief. What the hell was that? The old woman held her tongue. She stepped to the side of the snowy circle and drew another. Eddie tried not to look down. He couldn't help it. He was falling again, becoming eyes at a scene. This is what he saw.
He saw a rainstorm at the farthest edge of Pier, Ruby Pier, the North Point, they called it, a narrow jetty that stretched far out into the ocean. The sky was a bluish-black. The rain was falling in sheets. Mickey Shea came stumbling toward the edge of the jetty. He fell to the ground, his stomach heaving in and out. He lay there for a moment, faced to the darkened sky, then rolled on his side under the wood railing. He dropped into the sea. Eddie's father appeared moments later, scrambling back and forth, the hammer still in his hand. He grabbed the railing, searching the waters. The wind blew the rain in sideways. His clothes were drenched and his leather tool belt was nearly black from the soaking. He saw something in the wave. Waves. He stopped, pulled off the belt, yanked off one shoe, tried to undo the other, gave up, squatted under the railing and jumped, splashing clumsily in the churning ocean. Mickey was bobbing in the incessant roll of seawater, half unconscious, a foamy yellow fluid coming from his mouth. Eddie's father swam to him, yelling into the wind. He grabbed Mickey. Mickey swung. Eddie's father swung back. The skies clapped with thunder as the rainwater pelted them. They grabbed and flailed in the violent shock. Mickey, co Mickey coughed hard as Eddie's father grabbed his arm and, looked, and hooked it over his shoulder. He went under, came up again, then braced his weight against Mickey's body, pointing them toward the shore. He kicked, they moved forward, a wave swept them back, then forward again, the ocean thumped and crashed. But Eddie's father remained wedged under Mickey's armpit, pumping his legs, blinking wildly to clear his vision. They caught the crest of a wave and made sudden progress shoreward. Mickey moaned and gasped. Eddie's father spit out seawater. It seemed to take forever, the rain popping, the white foam smacking their faces, the two men grunting, thrashing their arms. Finally, a high, curling wave lifted them up and dumped them onto the sand, and Eddie's father rolled out from under Mickey and was able to hook his hands under Mickey's arms and hold him from being swept into the turf. When the waves receded, he yanked Mickey forward with the final surge, then collapsed on the shore, his mouth open, filling with wet sand. Eddie's vision returned to his body. He felt exhausted, spent, as if he had been in the ocean himself. His head was heavy. Everything he thought he'd known about his father, he didn't seem to know anymore. What was he doing? Eddie whispered. Saving a friend, Ruby said. Eddie glared at her. Some friend. If I had known what he did, I'd let that his drunken high drown. Your father thought that too, the old woman said. He had chased after Mickey to hurt him, perhaps even to kill him. But in the end, he couldn't. He knew who Mickey was. He knew his shortcomings. He knew he drank. He knew his judgment faltered. But many years earlier, when your father was looking for work, it was Mickey who went to the pier owner and vouched for him. And when you were born, it was Mickey who lent your parents what little money he had to pay for the extra mouth to feed. Your father took old friendship seriously. Hold on, Lady Eddie snapped. Did you see what that bastard was doing with my mother? I did, the old woman said sadly. It was wrong. But things were not always what they seem. Mickey had been fired that afternoon. He slept through another shift, too drunk to wake up, and his employers told him that was enough. He handled the news as he handled all bad news, by drinking more, and he was thick with whiskey by the time he reached your mother. He was begging for help. He wanted his job back. Your father was working late. Your mother was going to take Mickey to him. Mickey was coarse, but he was not evil. At that moment, he was lost, adrift, and what he did was an act of loneliness and desperation. He acted on impulse, a bad impulse. Your father acted on impulse, on impulse too, and while his first impulse was to kill, his final impulse was to keep a man alive. She crossed her hands over the end of her parasol. That was how he took. Sorry, that was how he took ill. Of course, he lay there on the beach for hours, soaking, exhausted, before he had the strength to struggle home. 
Your father was no longer a young man. He was already in his fifties. Fifty-six, Eddie said blankly. Fifty-six, the woman repeated. His body had been weakened. The ocean had left him vulnerable. Pneumonia took hold of him, and in time he died. Because of Mickey, Eddie said. Because of loyalty, she said. People don't die because of loyalty. They don't, she smiled. Religion, government, are we all not loyal to such things? Sometimes to the death? Eddie shrugged. Better to be better, she said, to be loyal to one another. After that, the two of them remained in the snowy mountain valley for a long time. At least to Eddie, it felt like a long time. He wasn't sure how long things took anymore. What happened to Mickey Shea, Eddie said. He died, alone, a few years later, the woman said. Drunk his way to the grave. He never forgave himself for what happened. But my old man, Eddie said, rubbing his forehead. He never said anything. He never spoke of that night again. Not to your mother, not to anyone else. He was ashamed for her, for Mickey, for himself. In the hospital, he stopped speaking altogether. Silence was his escape, but silence is rarely a refuge. His thoughts still haunted him. One night, his breathing slowed and his eyes closed, and he could not be awakened. The doctor said he had fallen into a coma. Eddie remembered that night. Another phone call to Mr. Nathanson, another knock on his door. After that, your mother stayed by his bedside. Days and nights, she would moan to herself softly, as if she were praying, I should have done something, I should have done something. Finally, one night at the doctor's urging, she went home to sleep. Early the next morning, a nurse found your father slumped halfway out the window. Wait, Eddie said, his eyes narrowed. The window? Ruby nodded. Sometime during the night, your father awakened. He rose from his bed, staggered across the room, and found the strength to raise the window sash. He called your mother's voice with voice with a little voice he had, and he called yours too, and your brother Joe. And he called for Mickey. At that moment, it seemed his heart was spilling out all the guilt and regret. Perhaps he felt the light of death approaching. Perhaps he only knew you were all out there somewhere, in the streets beneath his window. He bent over the ledge. The night was chilly. The wind and, the wind and damp in his state were too much. He was dead before dawn. The nurses who found him dragged him back to his bed. They were frightened for their jobs, so they never breathed a word. The story was he died in his sleep. Eddie fell back, stunned. He thought about that final image. His father, the tough old warhorse, trying to crawl out a window. Where was he going? What was he thinking? Which was worse when left unexplained? Which was worse when left unexplained? A life or a death? How do you know all this? Eddie asked Ruby. She sighed. Your father lacked the money for a hospital room of his own. So did the man on the other side of the curtain. She paused. Emil, my husband. Eddie lifted his eyes. His head moved back as if he'd just solved a puzzle. Then you saw my father. Yes, and my mother. I heard her moaning on those lonely nights. We never spoke, but after your father's death, I inquired about your family. When I learned where he had worked, I felt a stinging pain, as if I'd lost a loved one myself. The peer that bore my name, I felt its cursed shadow, and I wished again that it had never been built. That wish followed me to heaven even as I waited for you. Eddie looked confused. The diner, she said. She pointed to the speck of light in the mountains. Is there because I wanted to return to my younger years, a simple but secure life, and I wanted all those those who had ever suffered at Ruby Pier, every accident, every fire, every fight, slip and fall, to be safe and secure. 
I wanted them all like my like I wanted my Emil, warm, well fed, in the cradle of a warm a welcoming place, far from the sea. Ruby stood and Eddie stood too. He could not stop thinking about his father's death. I hated him, he mumbled. The old woman nodded. He was hell on me as a kid, and he was worse when I got older. Ruby stepped toward him. Edward, she said softly. It was the first time she had called him by name. Learn this from me. Holding anger is a poison. It eats you from inside. We think that hating is a weapon that attacks the person who harmed us, but hatred is a curved blade, and the harm we do, we do to ourselves. Forgive, Edward, forgive. Do you remember the lightness you felt when you first arrived in heaven? Eddie did. Where is my pain? That's because no one is born with anger, and when we die, the soul is freed of it. But now here, in order to move on, you must understand why you felt what you did, and why you no longer need to feel it. She touched his hand. You need to forgive your father. Eddie thought about the years that had followed his father's funeral, how he never achieved anything, how he never went anywhere. For all that time, Eddie had imagined a certain life, a could-have-been life, that would have been his, if not for his father's death and his mother's subsequent collapse. Over the years, he glorified that imagery life and held his father accountable for all of its losses, the loss of freedom, the loss of career, the loss of hope. He never rose above the dirty, tiresome work his father had left behind. When he died, Eddie said, he took part of me with him. I was stuck after that. Ruby shook her head. Your father is not the reason you never left the pier. Eddie looked up. Then what is? She patted her skirt. She adjusted her spectacles. She began to walk away. There are still two people for you to meet, she said. Eddie tried to say wait, but a cold wind nearly ripped the voice from his throat. Then everything went black. Ruby was gone. He was back atop the mountain, outside the diner, standing in the snow. He stood there for a long time, alone in the silence, until he realized the old, old woman was not coming back. Then he turned to the door and slowly pulled it open. He heard clanking silverware and dishes being stacked. He smelled freshly baked cooked food, sorry, breads and meats and sauces. The spirits of those who had perished at the pier were all around, engaged with one another, eating and drinking and talking. Eddie moved haughtily, knowing what he was there to do. He turned to his right, to the corner booth, to the ghost of his father, smoking a cigar. He felt a shiver. He thought about the old man hanging out that window, dying alone in the middle of the night. Dad, Eddie whispered. His father could not hear him. Eddie drew closer. Dad, I know what happened now. He felt a choke in his chest. He dropped to his knees alongside the booth. His father was so close that Eddie could see the whiskers on his face and the frayed end of his cigar. He saw the baggy lines beneath his tired eyes, the bent nose, the bony knuckles, and squared shoulders of a working man. He looked at his own arms and realized, in his earthly body, he was now older than his father. He, he had outlived him in every way. I was angry with you, Dad. I hated you. Eddie felt his, his tears welling. He felt a shaking in his, his chest. Something was flushing out of him. You beat me. You shut me out. I didn't understand. I still don't understand. Why did you do it? Why? He drew in long, painful breaths. I didn't know, okay? I didn't know your life, what happened. I didn't know you. But you're my father. I'll let it go now, all right? All right? Can we let it go? His voice wobbled until it was high and wailing, not his anymore. Okay, you hear me, he screamed, then softer. You hear me, Dad? He leaned in close. He saw his father's dirty hands. 
He spoke the last familiar words in a whisper. It's fixed. Eddie pounded the table, then slumped to the floor. When he looked up, he saw Ruby standing across the way, young and beautiful. She dipped her head, opened the door, and lifted off into the jade sky. Thursday, 11 a.m. Who would pay for Eddie's funeral? He had no relatives, no left instructions. His body remained at the city morgue, as did his clothes and personal effects, his maintenance shirt, his socks and shoes, his linen cap, his wedding ring, his cigarettes and pipe cleaners, all awaiting claim. In the end, Mr. Bullock, the park owner, footed the bill using the money he saved from Eddie's no longer cashable paycheck. The casket was a wooden box. The church was chosen by location, the one nearest the pier, as most attendees had to get back to work. A few minutes before the service, the pastor asked Dominguez, wearing a navy blue sport coat and his good black jeans, to step inside his office. Could you share some of the deceased's unique qualities, the pastor asked. I understand you worked with him. Dominguez swallowed. He was none too comfortable with clergymen. He hooked his fingers together earnestly, as if giving the matter some thought, and spoke as softly as he thought one should speak in such a situation. Eddie, he finally said really loved his wife. He unhooked his fingers and quickly added, of course, I've never met her. And that is all for today. We're going to pick up on page 146, which is titled The Fourth Person Eddie Meets in Heaven. But I think that this is a fitting place to stop. So we shall stop here. I trust that you have enjoyed this um, reading with me today, that you've enjoyed the third person that he meets in heaven. It's so interesting that he's had some understanding, and by definition, with understanding comes peace, which is what he has found. So, well, that's what he found in this encounter. So that was an amazing um, part of this book. I trust that you will join me next week to read The Five People You Meet in Heaven by Mitch Album. But this week, I trust that reading this chapter, or these pages rather, have broadened your mind, inspired your thoughts or a conversation, changed your world or entertained you. Whatever it's done for you, I trust that it's served you. And remember, everyone, that your flame, your fire, will always burn. Letting someone else's fire will never diminish yours. It will only create a larger fire. I have truly enjoyed reading this book with you. Thank you so much for joining in, for tuning in and joining me to read this book. Tune in next time. We'll read where, uh, sorry, where we'll read the, about the fourth person that Eddie meets in heaven. Have a great day, everyone. Have a great week. Please do not forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow. Check me out on at, on Instagram at chapter by chapter 256. Also at Miss Felicia J on Instagram. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Love Life and a Beautiful Gas of Red Wine. I truly enjoyed this today, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in again. This is Miss Felicia J. Until next time, be well.